Welcome, welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast presented to you from the Western Cape Pod Bunker located here in the heart of Cape Town, South Africa. This pod is presented to provide a platform and a voice for built environment professionals and interest groups who are working towards transforming the places and spaces here in South Africa. It is dedicated to those individuals and community groups that are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. It's estimated that over 50% of South Africans are currently facing food insecurity or are presently food insecure according to the definition that you're going to hear in this episode of the Talking Transformation podcast. This episode is a timely wake-up call to all built environment activists and practitioners. It talks about how food insecurity is becoming an increasingly urgent issue. Often the issue of urban agriculture, the supply of food within urban spaces is seen to be more of a rural planning issue. Uh, This episode certainly challenges that preconception and reminds us that food security in urban areas is less about the supply and the quantum of the food as it is to the access to both healthy and a variety of food sources. When food security is on the urban planning and the political agenda, focus is often seen as being on the supply of food as opposed to the access to that food. And you're going to hear that actual theme and topic come up in this episode. In the episode, we hear why this simply just doesn't hold, that if the food system is not planned for within our urban systems and spaces, equitable and affordable access to food is simply unachievable. It's as much a spatial justice issue as it is an agricultural supply issue. The episode takes its lead from the Consuming Urban Poverty, or CUP's, project and recently released toolkit that looked at specifically how to incorporate food into planning. The episode today hosts Robin Park-Ross from Endofuna Ekwazi and Alison Bulker, both of whom who worked for the African Centre for Cities, or the ACC, during the, the time of that research. Since that time, Robin Park-Ross has moved on to, as I say, a research assistant with Endofuna Ekwazi, and she's written extensively on the whole question of food and food security, also publishing her research material on the Belleville Transport Interchange Precinct where she looked at the relationship between the informal trading and that space and precinct management in and around that transportation interchange. She talks about that in in this episode. What is food insecurity? Where in the world has it been addressed successfully? And what is it we should be challenging in our daily choices, our policy making and our decision taking? The episode takes us on a global and continental journey to Durban, Cape Town here in South Africa, and Kisumu in Kenya, Kitwe in Zambia, and Epworth in Zimbabwe. The energy and the passion that Robin and Alison display in this episode very much demonstrates that the next generation of built environment researchers and activists are taking charge, leading the debate and challenging the older generation. It makes for an insightful and educational listen. Be sure to share the learning and the podcast links enjoy the episode. So it's a Monday afternoon and I'm joined here in the Cape Town CBD by Robin Park Ross and Alison Pulker from the African Centre for Cities or the ACC and uh, Robin you've recently joined Endofuna Kwasi. Yes I have. Um, Afternoon Pete, thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited to be here. 
Hi Pete, thanks so much for inviting us. It's really great to be here to be speaking about what I think is quite an important topic. Specifically today, we're going to be talking about the whole question of incorporating food and farming or urban agriculture into issues of urban planning and so forth. It seems to be quite a hot topic right now. And the, the research that the two of you have undertaken within the ACC over the last year or two is really what we're here to talk about. So, I mean, maybe just as a, to kick us off in terms of the, the project of the Consuming Urban Poverty Project, Robin, I think this is one of the things that you were driving with when you were with the ACC. Can you tell us a bit about the project and the toolkit that you developed and where that, that really brought you to this space to talk today? Yeah, so Consuming Urban Poverty was a research project that ran over three years. It was started in 2015, and it was headed up by Vanessa Watson at the planning school at UCT and also run by Jane Battersby, who's at the ACC. I was just working as a, as a researcher, but it was a really exciting thing to be a part of. And the project really looked at using food as a lens to understand how cities work and with a, with a view to poverty alleviation. What was really interesting about this project is that it looked at three African cities, but secondary cities. So it looked at Kusumu in Kenya, Kitwe in Zambia, and Epworth in Zimbabwe. And the project worked with um, partner universities in all of those places and a really wide um, interdisciplinary team. It was a really exciting project because it looked at two things that, are, that have actually largely been ignored. So looking at secondary cities and really understanding mm. that these are spaces that are where rapid urbanization is really taking place and yet much less understanding and research exists for these places. And at the same time, looking at food, which which in other ways has also been ignored. So yeah, for those reasons, I think it was a really important project and I definitely learned a lot working on it. Fantastic. I mean, Ali, some of the some of the figures, if we look at a South African yeah. context, are quite interesting. I think something like 26% of South Africans are currently considered to be food insecure, 20%, uh, 28% rather, uh, are considered at the risk of food insecurity. I mean, these are, these are quite uh, big challenges that uh, we as a country are facing. Yeah. It's interesting to hear about the secondary cities elsewhere yeah. in the, the continent. But yeah. your thoughts? So those figures are based on the South African National Health household survey from 2013 and they really do paint quite a bleak picture of um, South African cities and if you consider that that basically means that 50% if not more than 50% of South Africans are now currently in a kind of food volatile situation in terms of how they access Mm. food it really should be seen as a growing crisis and it doesn't seem that anything is changing at this point and one element that could serve as a point of intervention is the role that planners and that urban governance and decision makers and policy writers play in sort of alleviating this or keeping this in the back of their minds, hopefully in the forefront of their minds, when working on issues related to cities. Yeah, and I, and I think just to add to that, a really important thing to think about when we look at these kind of figures is what the material impact of these kind of mm. figures are. So how these kind of figures actually impact on people's lives. When we're speaking mm. about food insecurity, I mean, nutrition and food fundamentally shape the quality of someone's life. They can lead to um, health issues that impact, for example, employment opportunities. Mm. There's many different ways that, that food insecurity translates in a very material way into yeah, the, the really the way that someone lives. Yeah, I mean, even if you just take children as an example, like your education will, will be inhibited through the amount, if you have a lack of food, basically. If you can't access food, you can't learn on an empty stomach. 
and then that kind of systemic nature of food insecurity continues to compound throughout your life. So the nutritional and the developmental element of having a lack of food and nutritious food is is really quite real. I mean, you're sort of making a linkage there between urban poverty or the cycle of poverty, malnutrition, health or the mental as well as physical health. Exactly. With, particularly within low, low, lower income uh, families and households. Climate change would also seem to be something that this, this is, is, is trying to support and address. Is that one of the other issues? With climate change, the, the important thing to consider there is as, as high and as scary our figures of food insecurity are now, climate change will only exacerbate that issue. Right. So it's really a motivation for the urgency of paying attention to this crisis, especially as we head into more and more uncertainty. If that's the problem statement, then I think you've, you've defined it quite well. How would we go about defining what urban food security is? If it is an end state, which suggests that that 50% or more of South Africans who are either at risk or facing are currently insecure from their food supply, mm-hmm. how do we go about addressing that? What is a defi- definition of urban food security? I mean, the most widely used definition of what food security is comes from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, mm-hmm. and it says, and this is. This is a quote that food security is when all people at all times have physical and economic access to sufficient, safe and nutritious food that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. And this definition is is really useful because it focuses on access to food. But I think what's really interesting is that it's it's space blind, right? It's just mm-hmm. saying in general, all people. And the important thing about speaking to urban food security specifically is that it brings the focus to where it hasn't been before, which is food security within city cities for urban residents. Mm. I just want to add on to Robin's definition, which is, as she's mentioned, the most widely used definition, but also the four pillars that emerge from that definition in relation to food security, namely being the availability of food, so that's right. required for you to be food secure, the access, both physical and financial, to appropriate and adequate food, the utilization, so the non-food input, so how you, you prepare the food, and the stability, so how often I do you have access to this food? Is it on a, on a regular t- basis? And then there's another kind of concept in terms of food security, which I hadn't seen before I started doing more research on this, which was which is Roche's five A's of food security, which are availability, so food in sufficient amounts, right. which relates back to the, the four pillars, accessibility, again, physical and economic access, adequacy, so that food is nutritious, diverse and safe, and then acceptability, and what I think is, is really important is agency, so when people mm. are empowered by a food system environment that ensures the policies and processes driven by government or society are both in place, implemented and accessible so as to enable food security. So agency, I think, speaks to a lot about what a failing food system prevents you from having access to. So if you can't make food choices that relate to your lifestyle needs that are affordable, then a broken food system is limiting your agency in that sense through the research that you did, where within the continent in particular, or even globally, which are some of the cities or towns, uh, secondary towns and so forth, that do this well? Where are the lessons that can be learned and what through mm. your research did you find as being sort of best practice within mm. the African continent? Mm. 
this idea of food sensitive planning or food systems planning, the idea, these ideas really come from, from the global north, mainly from mm. North America, where they've been adopted quite strongly. But, but I think what's, yeah, what's really important, like you're saying, is to look at other contexts where these things happen. And I mean, a shining example that often gets used is a South American city called Belo Horizonte. We include it as a case study in, in the toolkit because of the way that it really, it's a city that's been able to look at food in an extremely holistic way. So they haven't intervened in one aspect of the food system. They've looked at the system in its entirety from production to, to distribution, to retail, to access. And they've really, yeah, they've created food system plans for the, for the whole system. They've created sort of committees that, that whose primary focus is this, and then they've created interventions in the physical space of the city. And this has really been a, a long-term process. It's not something that's new or come out of nowhere. It's been years and years of building on, on food systems innovation. So that's another interesting example that we looked at for the toolkit, um, which, which is a very different aspect of food sensitive planning is the Warwick Junction in Durban. Obviously, it's it's always ideal to, to learn from other South African mm. settings. What we're trying to do here is build a context appropriate uh, response. Mm. And so learning from places like Durban really helps us. And what was really, really important about what they did there was that they took an interchange that was facing many, many challenges and many issues, but that was hugely used by many residents of the city. And it was that they managed to approach an upgrading of the station that that really supported food trade in a way that helps people to access food on a daily basis on their journey to and from work through the space. This was a public transportation Mm. interchange where the design actually incorporated some of those elements to support the trading of of the of these goods Mm -hmm. and and food food products. Exactly. So so at its core, it's it's a upgrading of a interchange and the surrounding infrastructure in a way that supports access to food that's there's a range of different food options they're culturally appropriate it's and and the link between also people's livelihoods i mean many of the Mm. people that are selling food there they're not just providing food options but they are also that's how they that's how they make their way in the world so Mm. i think that yeah that's been a really useful and exciting example Mm. to look at and what's just an interesting anecdote from that is that there's often things that that come up through that that don't seem obviously connected to food. So for example, one of the successes with Warwick Junction was that they were able to use design interventions to improve the safety of the interchange, mm, right. which isn't an obvious link, but you can understand how by the, sa- by the space being safer and allowing people to use the, safe more s- the mm. space more safely, it allows people to access the food that the space offers. No, I was just going to say that I think when you use a food lens in an urban setting and apply it to various different contexts, I think you uncover things you never thought that you would you would find. I'm happy that you've brought in the, the informal economy so that we can kind of segue into the role that informality plays in, in the urban food context and how food, using food as a lens, for example, can help you understand the informal, formal kind of assumed dichotomy, but that actually intersects at various different points along the food journey and shows that the formal economy and the informal economy are not as dichotomous as we would would think they to be, but they actually exist on an intersecting continuum in Mm. a way. But also there are other roles that the informal economy plays on a a ground level. 
So informal traders, for example, they don't just, as Robin said, provide food, but they also provide things like social social credit. Um, they provide safety nets. They understand consumers' needs better than big supermarkets could possibly understand. For example, many spaza shops will sell half a loaf of bread or a single egg instead of the whole amount because it's, it's more cost effective. But Robin, did you notice anything else from your own personal research in Belleville in relation to what you can uncover when you use food as a lens and trying to see what how food intersects in, in our daily life? Ali, like you're saying, I don't think the importance of informal traders, the informal economy as a whole, can be understated when we're speaking mm. about urban mm. food security. And we're yeah. not just speaking about retailers here, it's the it's mm. the whole link of, you know, informal distribution links, informal wholesaling. Mm. There's a whole system of, of links that before the interface of retail, which is often what we see the most, mm. that, that are extremely important to people accessing food. Mm. I mean I learned a lot by doing research at Belleville Interchange. So this is a it's a very important transport node in the city of Cape Town and it brings together rail and buses, both within the city and long distance buses, as well as a very large um, taxi interchange. Right. And what was really interesting is that in the informal economy, people are already responding directly to the needs of people yeah. because it's the nature of their business. Yes. So in order to have a successful business, they need to place themselves exactly where people are commuting mm. and wanting to buy food on their way to work or, or all of these these simple things. So in a way, mm. even though planning has been ignoring urban food security, there are many people in the system that are already responding to these needs. What was interesting about the research in Belleville was that many of the traders, which is a group of people that are all the same, there's different mm. people trading different types of things with different levels of, of security in the area, they actually were often the difficulties, the challenges that they faced in playing this important role of supporting urban food security were around urban management right. mm. and and the services and infrastructure in the area. Mm. And I think that this is, I mean, this is definitely something that applies more broadly um, when we're talking about food-sensitive planning, mm. the, 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 the huge importance of the equitable distribution of infrastructure and services is key in supporting a healthy urban food system. In the case of Belleville specifically, as an mm. example, there were a lot of tensions and power dynamics and governance issues with the taxi associations, mm -hmm. the, the city itself, the traders, trade associations, and Partially because of that and for related issues, there was a kind of breakdown, for example, in urban cleaning. So mm. right. the, the streets weren't being cleaned, the, the toilets that were provided nearby, the taps that were provided nearby were all falling into disrepair. And that was having a hugely detrimental impact on the traders' experience of, of trying to provide food. And even though it seems like a small and simple thing, for example, having access to a tap with fresh water, that can be an essential element of providing healthy and safe food to mm. commuters who are traveling through the space every day. Yeah. I mean, that makes complete sense. I mean, just in summary then, what we're saying is those in, that informal trading within the Belleville space, the example you've used, it's absolutely reliant on footfall, the number of people, mm. the convenience of it being, being easily accessible, and ultimately a market of the products that are being sold. Mm -hmm. But on the back of that, 
if I'm hearing you correctly, Robin, you're saying it's about the whole question of a secure, a safe, a clean a precinct with amenity that, that starts to allow all these things to, to happen and operate between each other. Yeah, and, and not just for informal trading, but for people across the city who are trying to access healthy, safe and like culturally appropriate food. You need mm. these types of services and infrastructure everywhere, not just where there is trading, but obviously for trading, it's, it's crucially important. Yeah. I mean, Pete, I just want to touch on what you were talking about, saying you need footfall, you need accessibility. Mm. Those sorts of words kind of ring true with, you know, the city's push towards TOD. Um, And what I've found in my own research is that often at transport interchanges, there will be an existing informal market where people have access to convenient, more conveniently located food on their daily commute. And putting a label on it of of TOD kind of eradicates those informal traders, because what often happens is that those traders then have to move out for the new development Mm. that comes in, whereas there's already a local logic that exists. So obviously there are benefits to that. But But, but, if I'm I'm hearing you, I think it's a really important point you're making, Ali. Are you saying that basically the informal trading within a transit-orientated development or TOD Mm. context is just not sexy enough and that it's not not being thought about within that space and has almost been shunted out in in favour of something that may be less appropriate? Mm. Is Is that what I'm hearing you say? In essence, I think the difficulty with solutions like TOD is Mm. they come in and assume that something needs to be, that there needs to be this huge intervention in the space. Mm. And what I saw with Belleville was that, you know, in, in the absence of planning, supporting in this way, people actually respond to these challenges and do these types of things. For example, mm. traders actually cleaning the street around where mm. their stall is. That's a, that's a very small scale mm-hmm. example. But I think the important thing, rather than imposing a big concept or idea mm. onto an area, would be to like closely understand the logic of the area, like Ali is saying, mm. and see what interventions can support or enable yeah. what's happening there already. For example, your reference to footfall mm. is traders want to trade exactly where business is, so mm. exactly where people are moving. Mm. And often that is not where trading bays are. Mm. And there arises a huge conflict out of that, and it puts traders in a very vulnerable space when they are trying to make a living and if planning could find a way to understand that logic and respond to it by making that a space where people can trade from Mm. then that would really help the situation and that's actually a very small scale intervention compared to imposing a giant TOD type of overhaul of an area. Yeah, so for me, I've seen that example as well in Lange at the Lange Junction Mini Mall, where there was an existing, well-established informal market that was located at the Lange, at the Lange train station. Mm. And the city, towards the, the end of the World Cup, kind of pushed for infrastructure sure. um, in 2010. So they upgraded that, that, rail, that rail station and then brought in a supermarket that was built right there, which meant that the traders would have to leave that space. And they've since moved, well, been forced to move to a different site and haven't been, well, they've been promised new spaces, but that's never materialized. So I think what's interesting is that with the push in the city towards a transit-oriented development sort of planning approach, that is one way in which planning unconsciously or unknowingly has in, has played a role in shaping the urban food system and how people access food. So with potentially the best intentions, I don't know, without understanding the local logic and the local context, like Robin mentioned, 
um, you can have fairly harmful impacts. And I think the the quote that starts off this toolkit is really important in framing that, where it says, if planners are not conscious of food issues, then their impact is negative, not just neutral. And when I read that, Robin, I thought that just it just framed it so clearly. Yeah, thank you so much for including that in it. It just... <laughs> Those authors have really, really highlighted that in the in the fewest words, but most effective way. Interesting that we're talking about issues here of urban design, about mm. the whole question of infrastructure, the the nature of it doesn't need to be the the shiny. It can be simple, mm. simple uh, steps. But the the importance of that design and amenity infrastructure working together in collaboration to make spaces work towards this idea of at least food being traded in that space. I think the critique uh, that you've, you've given, Ali, is uh, the opening opening stanza about if, if planners are not conscious, it's, 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 it's an imp- a negative impact. I mean, what are the things that the sort of built environment decision makers, the policy uh, makers and decision takers, what is it they should be thinking about on a more daily and frequent basis? It sounds like, it sounds like it's, quite, it's quite a heavy critique of, of where the, the, the built environment is right now. Mm. Is, that, is, is that a fair fair assessment? I mean, I think it's useful to, to just take one step back and understand why we're in this space of not knowing how to deal with food as built environment professionals Mm. and I mean it's useful to to think about the fact that traditionally this issue of food insecurity has been understood almost exclusively as an issue of supply of food so the idea that we don't have enough food that's the issue therefore we need to focus on increasing the production of food and that leads to a direct focus on rural areas and the growth of food, agriculture. That, that's kind of the, the thing that's led us to this point is that because of that focus, it's seen as completely outside of the purview of urban planners. That's the kind of the, the framing that should guide us in where we're going next because we need to really, really interrogate the fact that, I mean, there was recent research that said that actually globally we produce enough food to feed the world Mm. over one and a half times. So Mm. it's really not an issue of the volume of food that's being produced and that leads us to what planners should be paying attention to. So if it's not about production... It's about the cost and availability. That's definitely part of the equation, but it's about after the food is produced, what are the forces Mm. and links and actors that shape how that food gets from where it is produced to where someone consumes it, including the cost, the state of the nutrition that Mm. it it arrives at at the end point. I mean, we really have to look at the the whole system. Even with informal trade, we were speaking specifically about retailers now, but it's really important that the way that informal trade operates, including processes, transporters, and retailers, is is supported in Mm. the in the city's economy. We can't forget that waste as being one of the the endpoints of of the food system. And I have to agree with Robin, I think traditional response in urban areas has been to apply that rural focus of production. More production equals less food insecurity. But because urban food insecurity is located in the urban and in a city, cities are complex in their nature. a city set in its own economic sort of framework then adds a whole layer of complexity about how people access the food, how that food is distributed, how that food makes its way to, to people who are then either able to afford it or not. And I think that's that's one of the things that policymakers tend to, to forget when working in an urban space, that these issues play out quite differently as with most things when, when put in an urban space. So it's not about pick and pay or Woolworths put it, putting their stuff on trucks and getting it to, those, to, to the different different centres. It's about different approaches within sort of, I guess, community networks and so forth to allow the distribution of food more locally. Is that what I'm, what I'm hearing? 
Well, I think it's about all of those things. I mean, mm. people use, like Ali was speaking about earlier, people actually tend to use formal and informal or more local and more global systems kind of interchangeably mm. depending on what's working for them. And I don't think that we should necessarily be advocating for one solution. So, so say, for example, saying we should be trying to make everything as locally as possible, yeah. but but more supporting the ways in which people are already choosing to access food that, that works for them. What you're mentioning there relates back to the one idea of agency where there is an agency and a logic to what people do when they buy food i mean if you think about your own food consumption strategies you don't necessarily only go to pick and pay because that's got your favorite stuff you'll have a look maybe at the specials what offers you credit can you afford that at this time of month do you have enough space in your house to store it do you have enough refrigeration are you Mm. buying how big is your freezer i mean personally i don't have a very big freezer so Mm. if i buy a lot of stuff that needs freezing something's gonna have to go you Mm. know so that agency and that logic is something also that I think we can't think of too simplistically in the in the sense that it's either only formal, either only informal, or and and I think what's yeah what's really important to that it's bringing me back to the idea of infrastructure and services mm. to say that it's possible that making sure that there's equitable infrastructure and services across the city may be a better and more supportive intervention in the food system Mm. than trying to make sure that all food is grown within a certain amount of kilometers Mm. from the city. But yeah, we, I think because we are at the beginning of understanding these things within our context, a lot more work needs to be done to understand what the specific interventions are needed in Cape Town in order to support our specific food system, which is different to food systems in other places. Yeah, even in Cape Town, our food system is immense. And I I like the idea of when you trace want like follow the thing follow the food and if you were to do that in cape town for example avocados would often not come from within our, our boundaries sure. and so our food system is not just bound to our political borders and even if it were that doesn't also necessarily mean it would be cheaper so it is really everything applies in a way if, if that makes sense yeah so. and i want to pick up on an example from the consuming urban poverty this is an example that jane battersby always used to go on about which is because it's a really key example of this. So in Kusumu, they did, I mean, in all of the cities, they did some value chain tracking, which Mm. basically just means you look at a source of food and you try to follow it through these different links. So, you know, where it was grown or fished or whatever to the point where somebody gets to eat it. And they were looking at fish in Kusumu, which is on Lake Victoria in Kenya. And you would assume being on a lake and seeing seeing fishermen in the area, that the fish being consumed in the city are being caught from the lake. Mm. And what the research actually found was that because of a huge drop in the supply of fish in the lake, the fish that was actually being eaten, even in the restaurants that were that were directly by the lake, mm-hmm. was actually coming from sources, other sources across the city, and even from, in some cases, Chinese export options. So it's just the idea that we we really, I mean, I think that's useful to illustrate that Mm. we really don't know what's happening yet. We need to understand more what's going on in Cape Town specifically Mm. or where people are working. And then also just to say that it's not always, the closest is not always the best answer. And there's often very logical reasons why people go to global sources or sources beyond their borders. Yeah. Just going back to the, the the food system, it operates as quite a different network to most other networked systems, if you think about it, because you rely on on international infrastructures and international 
corporations and companies which if you think about our sewage system is contained but if you think but if you think <laughs> about um food it breaches boundaries political borders yeah it, it's been a political issue remains a political yeah. issue mm. it has yeah. been for for for, for, for centuries mm. if we go back to your the toolkit robin and mm. let's let's talk about some of the what we're going to find in that toolkit we'll make the link available and uh, you know encourage listeners to check it out and engage with it but what they're going to find when they when they open up that that, that space so, yeah, the toolkit was really designed to help support planning educators in the context of Africa. So it's meant to help people that are training maybe the next generation of African planners to, to understand this issue of food and how they can incorporate it into their practice or wherever they end up. And the way that it's kind of structured is that it lays out the argument for why it's essential to incorporate mm-hmm. food into planning in Africa. And it also provides suggested course outline. So this is a very flexible outline that can be stretched to be a longer course. It can be squashed into a short workshop. We just really provided the bones of what are the important things to cover, including some suggestions of how that could be taught and resources, readings, all of those types of things. We also included a section with case study. So I already spoke about Bella Horizonte Mm. and the Warwick Junction Urban Renewal Project, but we also included a case study on the Nanjing wet market policy. So all of these case studies are meant to just ground and illustrate the ideas that are being spoken about in the toolkit. And I really just want to say that even though it's directed primarily at planning educators, the idea is that anybody working within the built environment, within planning, students, researchers, I think anybody can find some information that can help them. The core focus is just a kind of a cry for this is an urgent crisis and we need to pay attention to it and an attempt at a beginning of how we could pay attention to it. How do you see, I mean, if we think last year when you used the word crisis, and I think immediately of things like the water crisis, and then we could talk about the housing crisis. Mm. There are many crises right mm. now, and I'm trying to get a sense of how does how does this particular issue start to bat within those issues? And I think, you know, no, no food, you've got a problem. <laughs> so it, it's clearly a very serious, it's a life or death issue. Mm. But Ali, any thoughts from your side on where, how do we start to, to position this within all of these different urban uh, issues Mm. that are facing us and where do we prioritize how do we go about that any thoughts from your side so i think the thing with food is that it's it's almost like a silent killer it's a silent cycle that by the time you've realized it's a crisis it's probably too late so as we were mentioning earlier about issues of nutrition and development those kind of issues of childhood development will only start emerging when children are 13 14 let's say putting it in the same sense of urgency is really it's it's really a challenge because people like something that's tangible and now and we can see it and we can act sure. on it and resolve it sure and that's not something that this this can well that can happen in the food space providing policymakers planners decision makers with these kind of toolkits is one way to start entering into that intervention kind of space framing it as a crisis which i do believe it is and and will continue to be until there's quite a serious intervention is something that i personally think I'll, i'm going to have to think more on because if i continue to research in this space i need to mm. make it pardon the food pun but i need to make it palatable <laughs> um <laughs> so how do you do that to a public be- when there are so many things facing yep. them, the public at the moment and the feeling of like kind of crisis fatigue? And I think that that's, that's 
almost the crux of the issue with food is that mm. other social issues, other built environment issues, other physical issues in the city are so much more visible mm. and present mm-hmm. that, that it's very easy to ignore the issue of mm-hmm. food. And that should almost be a motivation for why we need to prioritize this yeah. issue. It's kind of this historic invisibility of food. And it's it's mentioned as like the invisible problem in urban areas because planners, you cannot see food. And so if you want to try and intervene in it, food is too big to see in the same sense. That's um, Carolyn Steele, mm. who wrote um, Hungry City. Mm. And so how do planners grapple with that kind of that kind of provocation if you need to use it to see it, but it's too big to to see. And on this question of, of balancing it with other priorities, I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that planners do balance other kind of basic needs. So mm. there's a lot of focus on the provision of, of water and sanitation sure. in cities. Sure. There's a lot of focus on shelter in cities. And I think what we are trying to say here is that food is as important as those other basic needs yeah. to human life. and. Mm. Why aren't we balancing it? I mean, we're not even at the point of saying how much priority should it be given in relation to these things. Mm. We're at the point of being like, it needs to even be on the table. Mm. And I think one thing that we also tend to forget, I know I do, even when talking about the issue of food, is that it's a constitutional right. You have the right to access food that is suitable for your diet. And if we're not doing that, then we're failing South Africans. We're looking out the window here. It's beautiful. It's raining. Look, it's pouring, <laughs> it's pouring down, which is great news. Uh, but well, I mean, we see a lot of a lot of rooftops, right? We see a lot of office office space. We see a lot of uh, roof. What do we call it? Infrastructure. Mm. My question is really, why why are we not using those spaces more optimally, Robin? I mean, any mm. thoughts from your side? I mean, here we are in one of the you know the great locations of the world in terms of a city. Yet it seems to me uh, an an oversight. Are we missing something here, or is this just the way it is? And it's another illustration of how it's just really not within our rhythm of mm. the of the moment or, or our design of buildings. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think to go back to the idea of of urban agriculture as a solution, that response has really come out of the idea that that the issue is again around around production. Mm. And while urban agriculture can be a really important intervention even for other reasons such as building community or you know linking different communities in a city where there's been lots of fragmentation. The research has shown that urban agriculture is actually not going to be the thing that solves this Mm -hmm. crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think that that it's not to say that that there aren't very important initiatives that have other urban agriculture initiatives that have other value, Mm. but just that that the the focus can't be on urban agriculture Mm. solving the problem. It actually creates very little impact in terms of inputs into the food system as a whole. Yeah, and if I can touch on that as well, I think you're right in saying that just because it doesn't, it's not the the solution to this issue doesn't mean that it doesn't provide other kind of value to other other contexts. What I've found and what Tracy Ledger's also written about um, in relation to urban agriculture as the solution to food insecurity in urban areas is that the onus that it puts on those from lower income backgrounds to work a 12-hour job and then come home and tend to their small plot of land is completely unrealistic. And if it's a failure of, a, if it's a systemic failure and a failure of, of the city mm-hmm. in, in terms of providing people with access to that affordable, fresh, nutritious, clean food, then why then continue to put that mm. pressure on the person who's who's struggling the most? You know, that's not fair. Yeah, and that's a really important point and a 
plays out in in other ways this like tension between it actually being a systemic issue mm. versus the onus being placed on the individual to yes. fix what is actually beyond their control yes. for example in this idea of health concerns mm. so often there is a big drive for people to get more educated about what food is healthy yes. for them yes. or non-communicable diseases or what nutrition is good for their kids and it's not to say that that isn't important but again it's the same it's the same replication of putting the pressure on individuals exactly. who are actually navigating a very complicated and problematic food system to the best of their ability and making very logical and rational decisions based on what's before them. No, I completely agree and I think it comes out quite clearly in one of consuming urban poverty's other publications the Tomatoes and Taxi Ranks book where you'd find people hearing these mixed messages so someone who perhaps works in a wealthy home in Nuruk and lives in Masi would be hearing like oh you must get up and and run or whatever for for two hours every day but then how how do you fit that into your life to try and you know mm. keep up and and you hear all these mixed messages about you must keep fit and eat better but then what's available to you isn't the kind of things that you're supposed well in inverted commas supposed to be be having and doing yeah so it, it, it continues on those same poverty cycles as well where you put the onus on the individual as Robin was saying so, so how important is the the concept of, of a cooperative or collaboration between different communities or different uh, is the cooperative approach uh, was something that you've, you've looked at Robin I mean, I guess I can think of it in different contexts. So, for example, the the Warwick Junction Urban Regeneration Project would never have been successful in the way that it was if it wasn't a collaboration between... I mean, it was the city working with the, in, in an area-based approach in collaboration with trader associations, people that work in the area, different departments within the city. And, yeah, I, w- I would say that any solution to any of the problems that we are facing absolutely necessitate Mm. partnership it's just that because this issue is so wide and there's different types of solutions those types of partnerships will look different in different places Mm. but we do need built environment professionals and also the government to step up to this issue and actually play an active role in in addressing Mm. this problem and I think what's what's come through in um, previous research that's been done on the city by colleagues at the African Centre for Cities is that it's not for planners on their own to solve Understood, at all. Yeah. Mm. But it is for planners to think about sure. and for planners in their role as these kind of mediator partnership creators to start putting on the table as well because of the way that they shape cities and ultimately unknowingly often end up shaping the urban food environment. So Robin, I mean, how do we go about mainstreaming some of this directly within our planning systems and in our frameworks and policy? There's many ways that this can be done and that has happened in in other places. So for example, there could be direct food systems interventions. So for example, we were speaking about infrastructure to support informal trade or urban agriculture projects. But then there's also the, the option of embedding considerations for food in planning or other decision making. So for for example, giving thought to how these decisions affect the food system. One example here would be to have a 
food systems impact assessment the way that we have a heritage impact assessment or an environmental impact assessment. And another option is supporting the existing channels that enable food access for vulnerable residents. We've already spoken about informal trade, but I think the important thing here is that when we're talking about incorporating food into local government and planning, there's just so many ways to do it. There's there's generating plans such as food system plans or incorporating food as an aspect of an SDF. There's zoning that can accommodate food processing, for example. Then there's also regulatory tools and fiscal incentives. So for example, waiving taxes for retailers who are selling healthy food options. I, I I think it's also important to recognize that when we're talking about food sensitive planning, there's so many different types of planners and it's important for, for all of us where we are working to think about what we can do to be food sensitive. Robin, what's the reaction been to the toolkit? Have you had good good feedback? <laughs> I mean, that's a really good question. So we put the toolkit out earlier this year, and I think that it's going to take some time. Part of the nature of this problem is that both the planning profession and universities, planning educators, are under-resourced across the continent. So I think that it is a challenge to adopt a whole new approach or incorporate a new idea when, like you said, there is a balance of these competing objectives and almost everything seems like a crisis. So I think it's it's going to be a slow process and we'll wa- we'll have to wait to see how it gets incorporated up, adopted but yeah we have to start somewhere. Robin, Alison, thank you so much for allowing us to spend some time today thinking about these issues, thinking about the products that are available and the successes that you've discussed around both uh, South Africa and the and the continent. Many thanks for your time and effort and as I say we'll make the links available and we would encourage listeners to engage with the material there, the toolkit. All the very best in your endeavors and hopefully we Thank can you. touch base in a, six months, a year or so and see, <laughs> and see where the two of you are in your respective spaces and where this whole question of the urban food governance issue takes us. Thank you. Thanks Pete. Thanks so much Thank for you. having us. My pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please engage with us and let us know your thoughts on this episode. You can do so via the Anchor podcast platform. There's a voice message function available via the app. You can also follow us on Twitter via Talking Transfo and the number one. So Talking Transfo one. Our theme music is kindly made available by Tribal Need. Find out about the music, the street art shows here in Cape Town and Europe via tribalneed.com.